Dan Azzi, welcome. Very, very good to be talking to you. Uh, we have a billion and one questions to ask you about this shit system we find ourselves in. Uh, first and foremost, how are you? Good. I only have time for a billion questions, not a billion and one. So I'm giving okay. you a heads up from now. Okay. No, sorry. I was pushing my luck with, with that one extra one, but I thought I would try my, try my hand. What I do want to ask you, uh, how inevitable was the economic crash that we find ourselves in today? Because it didn't just happen over the past year. Uh, it was inevitable. Uh, it was inevitable. It's just the size of the crash that was avoidable. And uh, the, the procrastinating and postponing this, the tough decisions makes it worse. It's not like wine. It ain't going to get better with time. So mm. there were several uh, nodes of decision making uh, along the way where the crash could have been avoided or minimized. So, for example, if we go back to 2008, uh, at that point in time, if we had floated the currency, for example, that would have uh, totally avoided everything we're going through now. Like the, the lira would have actually appreciated. Mm. Uh, it would have gone to a thousand if we did that because of all the fund the funds coming in. Uh, of course, this is retroactive vision, which is 2020. And I, I can't even pretend that anyone could see that that was the right choice at, the, at that moment in time. The next node would have been at two, in 2011 when the balance of payment turned negative. So that's, mm -hmm. again, a situation where we should have done something else. And then the biggest node is 2016. In lieu of the financial engineering transactions that the central bank did, uh, he, should have, uh, he should have done what he's doing now, floating the lira. So if he did mm -hmm. that, the losses would have been way, way less. Uh, now, not to you know, talk about him without representing his point of view. So the central bank governor's point of view is that he was just buying time until, that's his, his words, not mine, reforms happened. And he was waiting for Sadr and all that stuff. But in my opinion, even if Sadr had come in, $11 billion, and even if they had given us the money to do whatever we wanted with, which they weren't going to do, uh, it would have bought us 11 months, literally uh, a billion a, a month. So it's, it, would, it would not have avoided the losses in deposits and the, the, the destruction of the banking sector. So why is this called the biggest Ponzi scheme in history? For anyone who's maybe outside of the bubble, who, who doesn't have their money in a Lebanese bank, why are people calling this one of the biggest Ponzi schemes ever? Because the, uh, for the size of the deposit base. So the deposits were an, at the high $180 billion. Uh, mm -hmm. And since there was no uh, real investment on the other side. So normally what a bank does is you give the bank money, the bank lends a consumer to buy a car loan, a mortgage, a business, whatever, and as the as the consumer, as the the borrower uh, returns the money, pays back the money, the depositor can then get his money back, and the bank earns the spread. So what happened was that the banking system did that for a long time, but they evolved, or let's call it devolved, into mm -hmm. uh, lending the government at the beginning, which is which is kind of not as bad as people make it out to be. But the, the, the gravest mistake made was to lend the central bank the money because the central bank does not have the ability to pay back any dollars because the, the central bank does not have what's called taxing authority. And if you lend Ghazi Wazni money, Ghazi Wazni can impose a $100 cash tax for every person that lands in the airport, right? Uh, and that's how he could theoretically return the money assuming he doesn't borrow too much money. And he didn't borrow too much money. Uh, $30 billion in euro bonds is not as big as it sounds. Uh, on the other hand, the central bank, the banks lent the central bank 100 today. As of today, it's $108 billion, 80 billion of which is dollars. 
So when the central bank spends that dollar, he has no way of getting it back. So what the bank, banks did was to keep the, the, the system going or the Ponzi going by uh, uh, attracting new deposits with high rates to pay off the old depositors. And this was going on, except the rates became so high since 2016 that the money coming in no longer was sufficient to keep it going. And that's when it collapsed. And every Ponzi, by the way, collapses that way. So if you look at Madoff, Madoff went on for decades. The way he was mm. caught was during the 2008 crisis, when people were so afraid they started to pull their money, he couldn't get new enough new investors or depositors uh, fast enough to cover the uh, redemptions. So he was caught. So same thing here. Mm. What happened here is that the banks could no longer get, get that money in. And when they went to the central bank to get their money back, he couldn't give it, give it back to them because he didn't have it. He had spent it. And do you think that when, uh, just like out of something that really interests me, when the banks increased the rates for deposits at a very substantial amount during the mid-2010s, do you think it was done purposely in order to try and lure people into depositing their money into certain accounts so because they could forecast that a certain crisis was about to come? Well, it didn't happen. In 2010, the, the rates were still reasonable. Many, many, I said uh, mid-2010, sorry. Uh, yeah, in 2016, yeah. what happened was the central yeah. bank suddenly... I mean, look, it started out with the, the fact that they didn't want to increase the rates on euro bonds. So if you look at the euro right. bonds interest rates, the ones we just defaulted on, you're talking the rates were 5 or 6%. The highest yeah. rate pay, ever paid on a euro bond, the recent ones, were 7.25%. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, the Ministry of Finance, the central bank, I don't know who the decision maker was. They didn't want to, they didn't want to issue these bonds at a rate higher than seven and a quarter because they wanted to keep saying, and you've seen this on TV and right. other places, they keep saying our rates were low relative to Turkey and Egypt. You, you've seen several uh, uh, senior officials at the central bank brag about that. In reality, that was the, what's called the on balance sheet, you know, what people saw. But behind the scenes, the financial engineering transactions, they were paying rates that were way, way into the double digits. In fact, there yeah. was one uh, gentleman who who, uh, who went on Marcel uh, Marcel show, uh, yeah. and he admitted to have been having himself received thirty one and a quarter percent in two thousand sixteen on U.S. dollars deposit. Thirty one and a quarter percent. The gentleman later became a, a, a member of parliament, and he he admitted this in a session of parliament as well as on Marcel Ghanem's show. Thirty one and a quarter percent. So the lending rates, of course, the banks were earning even higher because they were earning yeah. a spread. So they were passing on the 31 and a quarter, but they were getting paid up to 40% or 42%. Uh, mm -hmm. So those were the real uh, uh, borrowing rates at the, at, the marginal, uh, at the marginal level. And I wanted to ask, um, could we have started to, like we as consumers, could we have started to predict that, you know, shit might hit the fan when we saw our real estate sector starting to become, you know, really at unease basically you know late 2000s we were having like a really thriving real estate sector a lot of foreign investment was coming in and then when the banks were offering these crazy interest rates all of a sudden we had unfinished developments no one was buying apartments and houses anymore so could the real estate sector have given us a bit of a notion of what was to come actually it was two different problems and yeah. they, they were both happening there was a real estate bubble which was supposed to crash a long time ago, but due to lack of transparency. And what happened was there was a collusion among developers, real estate uh, professionals, the central bank, the government, everybody, the media even, uh, to hide the fact that the real estate uh, crash had started. In fact, the real estate crash had started 
by my uh, calculations, somewhere between, depending on the region of Lebanon, somewhere between 2008 and 2010. But people didn't, uh, uh, people didn't realize that uh, the crash had happened because they weren't told. So, I mean, think about how you would buy, someone like you would buy an apartment. So you go and your only knowledge of what the apartment is worth is basically what the guy's asking, right? You don't know what the, yeah. you, you, there, is, there is no publication anywhere that tells you uh, what, uh, what the apartment next door sold for, right? All you have is rumors yeah. and uh, innuendo and uh, theories. So uh, an unsophisticated buyer would have overpaid. Now, when they when he brought in the scan loans and the subsidized loans, which kept the, the, the scam going, the real estate bubble going, uh, what happened there is you as a consumer didn't care what the price was, you cared what your monthly payment was. In fact, when you were negotiating with the, with the seller, you wouldn't ask him how much you want for the apartment. You'd ask him, what are my payments gonna be? And the guy would set it up in a way to, uh, uh, to fraudulently allow you to buy it with no money down. And they would sign something saying you paid the money down and they would structure it such that you end up making a payment which to you looks like a reasonable payment. Um, yeah. However, uh, you as a consumer were way, way, way overpaying for that apartment. And this was how they kept the bubble going. So there were two separate problems. There was a real estate bubble and then, of course, the central bank realized that the scan loans were just helping the balance of payment deficit. Because what happened there, the, the problem with the lies that happened there is that new developers kept entering the market because of the prices being held artificially high. This is in, you know, this is in Economics 101, you study this stuff. If the price is artificially high, uh, excess supply comes into the market because the business plans yeah. are built on the higher prices. Mm. So that's why you saw for years and years all these empty apartments, yet people kept building. Yeah, I remember, I remember when, I, when I used to be young, like I would say maybe when I was like around 12, 13 years old, I was actually fascinated by the amount of new developments that were going on, not just in Beirut, but all around Lebanon. You see all these modern projects and they actually, you know, from, a, from like just by observing them, you think that these developments are really well built and well maintained. But I'd always ask myself, I was always curious, like, how many people can actually afford living in them? And now, you know, 10 years later, you actually look, realize that most of these developments right now are actually empty and nobody can actually afford living in them. So as you said, like, I guess all the, the way that they were valued was basically based on speculation, regard, like disregarding any proper intrinsic value, am I right? Yes. The ultimate irony, by the way, is that there were a lot of mm. prizes distributed in those days to Lebanon, the yeah. central bank, for avoiding the subprime crisis, right? But when yeah. you lend people that should, you know, when you lend somebody making $20,000 enough to buy an apartment for $200,000 and with no money yeah. down, guess what that is? That is exactly subprime. So the, the irony yeah. of the whole thing is we got into subprime after we saw the, 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 the devastating effect that subprime had in yeah. the United States and other countries. Yeah. It's funny because I can imagine like I imagine this as like a five New York five family mafia situation where the, the big real estate players and media players and banking players and government officials meet behind closed doors on a round table, agree to collude and all this shit. Like I have this picture of like a very godfather type of scene in my head with, with, with that going on. And I wanted to I've seen a bunch of your talks and something, you know, you've been very vocal about was the decision to peg the lira to the dollar you're, you're not a fan of that decision uh, and this goes back to i think in the 90s so can you talk to me why you weren't a fan of that and the shit that basically 
happened because we pegged the lira to the dollar? There's nothing wrong with pegging a currency after it collapsed for a year, two years, three years. This is normal to bring back what's so-called trust in the system. Everybody does it. The problem is that we went on with the uh, with the peg for so long. Usually countries that peg, there are, there are very few countries that peg and succeed, by the way. The, there's a, you know, the exceptions are the Gulf uh, countries, and really they have a, an income that is, uh, that is uh, uh, in the currency they're pegging to. You know, the petrodollars are, you know, they peg mm. to the dollar and they have petrodollar income. But even there, there's yeah. a lot of pressure about the, uh, the peg. Uh, Hong Kong is another successful example. Again, I'm not going to get into Hong Kong. I lived there for four years. It's a totally different animal. But in general, countries that peg, uh, uh, they end up blowing up. One of the reasons why, because what happens is you no longer have a, an independent monetary policy of your own. Effectively, it's like that joke about uh, North Dakota and South Dakota. So South Dakota says, you know, what are those guys up there called? If somebody says North Dakota. Well, we'll be South Dakota. You know? There's no original thought. There's no originality. You, know, you have to import the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. You know, if, if Jerome Powell, a, a man you need to, whose name you need to know if you're pegging to the currency of the United States, that's, that's the, the Riyadh Salem of the United States. Uh, okay. If Jerome Powell decides to raise rates because inflation is heating up in the United States, we have to raise rates. However, for us, we could be lowering rates is the right choice because we have the opposite problem. We have a recession. So that's one of the problems. The second problem is we don't import all our stuff from the United States. The third reason that the peg to the dollar is a bad idea is because we have some geopolitical uh, tension uh, with the fact yeah. that they are sanctioning a, little bit. A, a third of the population. So it's a very, very bad idea to peg in general, but specifically to a country where we have a chunk of the population that uh, has decided to, to, to get into a boxing match with Mike Tyson. <laughs> boxing match, yeah, exactly. And um, for, for, for anyone now who has their money in the banks, for anyone who can't, take out their money, send it abroad, pay for their kids, college tuition. This is just me as an average consumer asking you, what do you think is going to happen to the money in the banks right now long term? There are rumors that, yes, it might, they might exchange what you have in the bank for shares it's in said bank. Is, is this? Basically, but I want to get Don's opinion. First, you have to look at the numbers. One of the things in Lebanon that we, we don't, we're very, by the way, financially illiterate in the country. I was on a Zoom the other day, and you cannot imagine the amount of nonsense that's propagated. There are people here that are, you know, like they're the dumbest motherfuckers you can ever imagine that are opining on this, on this issue. And it doesn't take an economist, like I'm not an economist I, or an expert on, on the economy. What I am is an expert on common sense. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. You don't really need to, a PhD in economics to analyze that this whole thing was, was you know, fucked, totally fucked up. Uh, the, 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 uh, anyway, if we look at the numbers, and I'm going to teach you subtraction here because we know how to add in Lebanon, but we, for some reason we don't know how to subtract. So when the central bank governor says to you, he is now down to the mandatory reserves, 15% of deposits, and he doesn't want to spend those, right? What is he telling you? He's telling you that he spent the other 85%. So, so, yeah. so out of every dollar, there's 15 cents left with the central bank governor. Type. When, when the central bank governor issues a circular, 154, and tells the banks, you guys need to bring in 3% of your deposits in so-called fresh dollars, real dollars, as opposed to monopoly money. What is, yeah. what is he really saying? He's saying that even if they meet the circular, that means that they, they do not have 97% of the deposits, of the fresh deposits. 
and uh, and another another reason as to why we got here i remember i was at one of my older relatives was ex- trying to explain to me the whole reason behind the financial collapse in a very brief way as you were mentioning <laughs> earlier like we were a country that heavily relied on import and we weren't really self-sustainable up until this point in time so the trade deficit every single year was really high but the way through which that trade deficit was covered was due to the fact that you, has, you had a lot of foreign dollars coming into the country, whether it was through foreign companies, whether it was through tourism. And two of, the th- two of these things, which were major factors in bringing in money, got cut off because foreign companies started retracting and moving their companies out of uh, Lebanon, especially through like interference when it comes to political interests of the Gulf countries. And, you know, due to what has ha- been going on with the pandemic for the past two years, our tourist, our tourism economy, our tourism industry has completely crashed. So how can we, in a, in a certain way, become more sus- self-sustainable? Like, I'm going to give you a bit of a different take for that. It's approximately correct. All right. You know, we've always yeah. been, as your relative said, we've always been dependent yeah. on imports. The thing is, we had enough yeah. dollars, like your relative said, that sustained it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the deficit was covered basically by expat remittances, FDI, yeah. uh, tourists, etc. Yeah. When 2008 came, 2010, there was a, a one-time event that occurred. The global crisis meant that a lot of Lebanese who had their money outside Lebanon, because remember, interest rates in Lebanon in those days weren't attractive enough for them to take the country risk. No. They had their money in Swiss yeah. accounts, Luxembourg, France, Italy, wherever. So when the global crisis happened and there was, a, you know, Major banks were under threat of, of, of going bankrupt. The fifth and the fourth and the third largest investment banks in the United States disappeared from existence. Yeah, yeah. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, and Lehman Merrill Lynch. Brothers, totally yeah. these, these are banks, some of them 150 years old. They disappeared. Yeah. So a lot of Lebanese moved their money to Lebanon. So that this was, there was a surplus, surplus, not a deficit, of $20 billion mm-hmm. in those days. When $20 billion walks into a small country like ours, right? what happens there? It flows into the economy, except it didn't flow in a very smart way. What happened is, like you mentioned, there was a lot of these stupid towers that were built and other stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Now, this moves the economy. It creates jobs. It creates taxes. It made the government bigger. It did all that stuff. So the, the per GDP per capita increased in those days to a level where that's very high in other words our imports increased so what we did is we lived uh, we assumed that the the money that came in in 2008 9 10 would continue to come in ad infinitum mm-hmm. so come 2010 it actually stopped it went back to the old levels so at that point in time because our uh, because our per capita gdp is so high and our import level that's when the deficit became high so there are other, there mm-hmm. are factors like mm-hmm. you're mentioning that reduce the money coming in but the main factor is the fact that our standard of living demanded more spending of dollars i'll give you a uh, an example so when you talk about tourism the last few years before the crisis tourism into Lebanon, if you look at tourism into Lebanon and then tourist, Lebanese tourism out of Lebanon, it was equal to almost about the same amount as, as tourists in the countries. In other words, it canceled each other out almost. There was tourists yeah. into country was a slightly more. Why? Because it was cheaper for an average Lebanese making a lira subsidized salary at 1500 to fly to Turkey or France or Bulgaria. And you could see this from all yeah. your friends with the Instagram photos in, in Mykonos mm. and boardroom and all these places <laughs> three, four times a year. This, is, this was all taken dollars out of the country. So it canceled out the dollars that were coming in. The other one is, one of my favorite, is the uh, foreign workers, yani domestic helpers, Syrian workers, Egyptians, blah, blah, blah. This money, and yani remittances were, say, at the high seven, maybe eight billion dollars. Uh, 57% of that money went right out because of these uh, foreign workers, yani 57%. Mm. In other words, the typical Lebanese guy sending money to his mom and dad, 
was basically paying for 57% of the maid. So, you know, he might as well have spent, sent the money right back to the Philippines. And, it, you know, it's, it's the guys in Dubai yeah. sending it here. Just send it to the Philippines. Mm. Don't even bother sending yeah. it. So, so this, was the, the, this was the main, main issue. So all this other stuff you're talking about, the Syrian war, geopolitics, sure, there were factors. But it didn't change the fact that uh, the crux of the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme and an unsustainable way of life. And if we maintained our lifestyle at the level of pre-2008, we, we, we would have been okay. But Dan, on a, on a, no. I mean, we all knew the system was a bit fucked up. Hala, you've uh, found a very poetic way to show us how fucked up it was in, in a very eloquent way. But you saw consultancy firms, Hala, I'm not sure which one sent in, but there were plans on how to make Lebanon more sustainable. I remember somebody suggested this whole idea, one of the big consultancy firms of uh, building casinos and really upping our tourism and... Uh, it was I don't know if it was I don't know who it was and they sent it to the government and we had certain politicians come out and say yes we saw said consultancy firms plans and we're going to be trying to enact them so I think there were plans being sent around of how to make Lebanon more sustainable but then it goes back to government and nothing was enacted so going forward are you confident we can make it more sustainable if we still have the same people running the shit show like, I'm going to say something that's not very popular. Even if you look at the analysts and consultants that were looking at this stuff, they all missed the real crux of the problem in the first place. And it, it, the very the litmus test of a consultant, if the consultant understood the problem, is where is his money? And I have friends of mine who are CEOs of the most important banks in the world, okay, have their money in Lollars right here. These, a lot of these consultants mm. have their money stuck right here in Lebanon. So pretty clearly, they were consulting based on certain formulas and, and cliches, and they didn't yeah. themselves understand where the real problem was, because there's a reason for that. Same thing with the analysts, the economists, because everybody reads the same book. And it, when you go and take an economics course, whether you're with the IMF, an analyst or whatever, okay, what do you read? You, you, it's always talk, it talks about debt to GDP ratio, right? If you look at the media and reporting and analysts, there was always the fact that Lebanon was had the third highest uh, per capita uh, G GDP per ca uh, debt to GDP ratio in the world. Remember, it was Japan number one, Greece, and yeah. then us. Yeah. This is what they were concentrating on. And in fact, it is to an extent a problem the fact that we had at the time something like $90 billion in debt. But what they all missed is the $110 billion in debt at the central bank. Not only that, the, si the $90 billion, 60, 60 of it is lira, 31.2 is, is dollars. On the central bank, $80 billion is dollars. In fact, if you look today at our debt, Level. So this is 60 billion today at, at, at a rate of 15,000. What is it now? Something like 4 billion. The, the euro bonds are trading at 10, 12, 13 cents, right? So that's 4 billion. So mm -hmm. our debt now is 7 billion. We have no the government debt anymore. It's gone. Even if we restructure, like we pay double the market rate, and we're talking 10, 11, 12 billion dollars. So our debt to GB ratio, game over, it's gone. It's now below 100%, whatever the lira is at today's rate. So that leaves the other debt. What about the 80 billion with the central bank? Guess what? It's still the same thing. It hasn't, it hasn't gone down. So the central bank still owes the banks pretty much the same amount of money. So what they're trying to do to solve that problem is to print lira at 3,900 to, 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 to get rid of the problem. And they are spreading the problem to every Lebanese citizen who earns a lira salary. You see, you see what I'm saying? So, so, so all the stuff that they're talking about, like building a casino, that my building a casino, and 80, 90% of building the casino is all dollars flowing out, <laughs> balance of payment. In fact, the central bank, that's the reason that the central bank stopped the skin loan. He realized that 
these guys building, they're importing the glass, they're importing steel, they're mm. importing Italian marble, all this other, all this bullshit, right? And then they're overcharging these people. So in, in other words, it's all, it's all uh, 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 aggravating the problem. That's why he stopped it. We, we, we were also talking about like self-sustainability. And, you know, I think over the past few years, a few interesting articles and documentaries have came out about like the Lebanese like drug business and how Lebanon is considered to be one of the biggest exporting countries of hash. And I think I don't know which consulting company wrote a report about it last year as to if Lebanon legalized it, it could actually help solve so many economic problems within the country. But do you think that one of the main reasons it's still not legalized is very similar due to the fact that our country loves to privatize things, for instance, like the like the electricity industry, where you know you have like a monopoly as to people privatizing generators. And do you think that's one of the main reasons as to why we can't be self-sustainable? For instance, why not even legalize hashish? Because the people in power actually make more money off it if it's illegal. Uh, look, I, I'm not a big fan in the first place of of, uh, of the Dutch disease and yeah, natural resources yeah. as the solution. And yeah, there's a lot of people talk about legalizing hash. Suddenly, it's gonna it's gonna be great. Or uh, yeah. if you you know the oil and gas in the sea, all that stuff. If you look at countries yeah. that rely on natural resources, yeah, and what's also called uh, the resource curse, the Dutch disease. There's a lot of different names for it. We actually tried that you know we had the, a, a form of dutch disease we had a form of oil or natural resource which is expat money and effectively that's what we were doing we were using expat savings to sustain a lifestyle that's unsustainable so in my mind you know, legalized hashish is already being sold uh, illegally to, to the outside world right yeah selling it so what you're saying is if we legalize it legalize it suddenly this will solve the problem and you know, if you legalize it it doesn't increase the amount that is going to be sold the, the world demand remains the same so if you legalize it, all it does is it transfers the, the revenue of Nuhazaitir to partly or all to the government. <laughs> yani it doesn't, it doesn't, yani the guy in Amsterdam that's going to smoke a, 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 a Saruk Hashishi yani, is not going to smoke mm. too because you decide to legalize it in Lebanon, right? Especially if you put uh, uh, certain constraints on it, like medicinal or whatever. So again, it's a it's a positive factor to legalize it if we can sell some stuff. But the the, the main, if you look at you know, if you look at the most important companies in the world today, Apple, uh, Amazon, mm. etc. What are they selling? <laughs> right. It's it's yeah. It's an actual like cloud service. It's 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 this stuff. It's an idea, yeah. right? Even yeah. even Starbucks, yeah. even Starbucks coffee. We've been yeah. drinking coffee for thousands of years. What did this guy do? He came in on a napkin and said, "Hey, you know what? I'm not going to charge a dollar for a cappuccino. I'll char charge four dollars, and I'll call the, the 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 person that works at the bar uh, barista instead of a waiter." <laughs> Right, and we bought and that shit. Yeah, we were music. like, we're like, I'll have all the baristas in the world. I'll pay fifty bucks for a cup of an espresso, a hundred percent. And now, now it's a multi, yeah, now it's a multi-billion-dollar company. So that, to me, the solution, the future solution of Lebanon, is all about selling ideas, not selling stuff. Yeah, yeah. digging holes in the Mediterranean, okay, and extracting uh, uh, and destroying the environment. We're, we're already doing that, by the way. If you look at the highway. Yani the highways of Lebanon, uh, I mean, look at what they did to that mountain. And, you know, they, they took that mount, they took that mountain as if it belongs to them. This mountain belongs to your grandkids, and they destroyed it to turn it into into this, these monstrosities of concrete. Sold it, right? Built yeah. uh, This is not the type of economy we want anyway. The type of economy we want is a guy like you sitting in, in, in and trying to come up with some type of an idea for some type of a business, right? Mm. 
I, yeah, I see what you mean. The the way that I was looking at it though, the way that I was looking at it though, like when it comes, for instance, like let's say we legalized like the hashish industry and we started exporting it, that in itself can allow you to create certain companies that specialize within this domain, meaning you could create more job opportunities within the country, which means you could start branding certain, like you could create certain brands of weed, blah, 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 and export that outside. So I was looking at it more, because we were talking about self-sustainability, I was looking at it more in terms of like Yeah, job generating creation. jobs, yeah. So you legalize it, yeah, you, you, like, you, let the, you let the industry start like running a bit. Yeah, again, I don't. I, I'm not against legalizing it, but again, there, there's no magic yeah. bullet like that. It's it takes a lot. I mean, the first thing we got to do is stop mm. the bleeding of dollars, which is going on a diet. And it, let's look at Lebanon trying to run a marathon. Lebanon right now is has got a sucking chest wound and is lying on the ground, needs ICU. So you can't talk about the patient running a marathon yet. The first step is you stop the bleeding, you put that oxygen thing, you know, you stabilize the person, then they start walking on crutches and then they, they start running and then they start running long distances until they run a marathon. So same thing with Lebanon. The first step we got to do is reduce our dependence. Our, you know, we have to go on a dollar diet. We have to reduce our dependence on imports by by uh, uh, executing targeted tariffs on, on unnecessary shit. And you, know, you don't need hundreds yeah. of thousands of foreign employees in a country of Lebanon. And if you so. put a country like the United States, which is uh, you know, arguably one of the most successful countries in the world, if you took that and you said, okay, let's, uh, you know, they have a minimum wage of $15. You say, okay, open it up now for Mexicans. They can come in for a dollar an hour. What happens there? Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Americans lose their yeah. jobs, right? So they, yeah. they have protection. Same thing with Europe. You know, you think you think you can move to Europe today and then just go take a German job? You can't. So what we did in Lebanon, we said, okay, for blue collar jobs, yani shitty jobs, I'm gonna allow these foreigners to come in and do them. And yani the guy who puts fahmi on your argili, the guy who puts gas in your car, as if that's a job that's necessary. In in respectable countries, you put gas for yourself, right? Mm. Uh, and so on. Uh, but white collar jobs, you're not allowed. Yani a Syrian cannot come in and become an accountant, for example, or work as a, a, in a bank. It's very difficult for a foreigner. I think we have in banks, we have maybe two foreigners that came in, the Greek guy and, and the Jordanian CFO of one of the major banks. And, you know, those are anomalies. Generally speaking, we don't hire foreigners for these types of jobs. We hire foreigners for medial jobs. But even medial jobs are dangerous. Dan, uh, something that I've noticed as well in regards to the protests when people go down on the streets. Uh, we can take a lot of shit as Lebanese, but when you start to fuck with people's money, that's when people will go down on the streets. And what I mean by this is when we started to see in the news that the Lira has hit 16,000, 15,000, 14,000, people take to the streets, you know, and rightfully so start, um, start campaigning against the government. Hello. I wanted to get your take on on the exchange rate, what's happening in the black market. You hear a lot of people in the government saying, oh yeah, there's market manipulation going on. There are external forces and it's, there's always fucking outward blaming to other people. Could you explain a bit just what's happening with the exchange rate in the black market? So uh, the, the, you know, the long-term exchange rate is dependent on very simply supply and demand. And the fact that there's no longer support for the exchange rates from the central bank. And it, first of all, let's start with the history here. A lot of people don't realize the exchange rate fell outside the peg, not after October 17. It fell out of the band in the summer of 2019. 
it started trading out of the band is 1500 to 1515. So it started going to 1520, 1525, 1540, 50, 80. Uh, the minister of, uh, of, of the economy back then, uh, Mansour Abtesh, went on TV, defended, said it's okay to be out by 10%. The central bank governor said the same thing. So there was a policy shift to move it by 10%. In fact, at the time, I made a statement saying that either the central bank is lying about this, the reserves he has, or he's happy with the with the going outside the band. This is the statement I made. I spoke to them a few days after that, after me saying that, and you'll notice I, I published an article supporting the black market exchange rate at the time, because mm -hmm. what I got mm -hmm. from them is that it was on purpose. Uh, and it was the right decision. Be because they could not let the peg go officially because of political reasons, what they did is they did it surreptitiously. When you move it into the black market, and a lot of people think he, you know, he lost control of the peg. He didn't lose control. Uh, he let it go because he, he wants it's by the way uh, devaluation is a form of tax if you read basic economics books it's called the inflation tax it's yeah. a way to tax you and if i can't tax you directly i tax you through inflation so what he did was he didn't he wanted to reduce imports so he basically made the traveling very expensive for you he made it very difficult for you to transfer money outside he made it difficult for you to buy cars all that stuff has 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 dropped uh, uh, tremendously. So in the long run, the reason the lira is collapsing is because you're printing too much lira and there's too many dollars going outside the country. It's simple as that. In the short term, absolutely, there's manipulation. Manipulation through rumors, speculation. People think they're smart. I know a lot of people when it went to, you know, when it went, when it, when it went to 15,000 or 14,000, they started buying the opposite of what they're supposed to do. And then when it dropped to seven or six, they started selling. <laughs> So these are this yeah. type of manipulation happens so that they screw the average Joe, you know. But in the yeah. long run, obviously, the lira will keep on its track of, of devaluation up until uh, three or four major major decisions are taken. And I, I've delineated those, and I can I can go through what they should do to to stop the devaluation and even uh, strengthen the lira. Yeah, please please let us know. Okay, what yeah. what are those decisions yeah. that are gonna they're gonna do that? So. Okay, so there's two things. The, 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 the reason there's devaluation is, first of all, as we said, you've got to reduce imports. The way you reduce imports is you, you target the biggest imports and you, 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 you tax them heavily. So not only do you remove uh, the subsidy down on, 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 on gasoline, you actually tax it heavily. If you look at the price of gasoline in the United States or Europe, uh, you know, 80, 90% of it is not uh, profits for the Gulf, the GCC. 80, 90% of it is taxes in the country itself. And the Gulf makes 10 or 15% of that money. That's it. So most of it is taxes because they don't want you to be uh, uh, burning that much fuel. So what you do is you tax it heavily to reduce the, car, the, carbon hi, the, 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 the hydrocarbon footprint. In the, you know, it's good for the environment and it's good for the country to do that. Uh, and you replace it with other stuff, by the way. It's not like, okay, you make it impossible for somebody to go to work. That's not what I'm saying. But so gasoline and diesel fuel is the major thing. The next thing is, we talked about it, foreign workers. Uh, cars, yeah. things like cars, V8, V6 cars, they should be like Singapore. In Singapore, if I want to buy a Range Rover, it costs me five, dollars $600,000. That's what we should do in Lebanon. Tax it so heavily that everybody, like in Paris, if you guys have been to Paris or those places, you'll see that most cars are de chevaux, four-cylinder, etc. Only in Lebanon, you see a rich guy has a brand new Range Rover and a poor guy has an old Range Rover. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sentence. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it costs you to fill up your Range Rover in Lebanon. It costs you like twelve bucks. It's cheaper than Saudi Arabia. I mean, nobody has a human right to fill his Range Rover with cheap gas. It's it's ridiculous for us to be spending that kind of money, even in the crisis we're in today. Mm.
and uh, Dan as well because we were on the topic about how you know there's like devaluation going on with our currency and something that I've been personally fascinated about like a topic in general is decentralization recently and like and even like if you look at it to a certain form like anarchy and like decentralization is when you have like the transfer of power from like a from like a, a certain entity and you basically spread that power to small individual entities would you say that Lebanon has been a decentralized state or is heading towards becoming a decentralized state at this point in time? I mean, look, the country in general has always mm. been, uh, yeah, the average person, at least if, if you look at a long period of time, not necessarily your lifetime, but my lifetime, yeah. uh, the, the, there's been a lot, yeah, we haven't had any major expectations from government, whether it's electricity or water yeah. or whatever. Uh, so that what, what, what is called, what people like to refer to as Lebanese resilience, I, I call it Lebanese acquiescence, uh, acceptance of abuse. Uh, we, yeah. you know, yeah, when you don't have electricity and then you go and have a generator and end up paying five times the cost if you fixed it in the first place, uh, that's not resilience, that's stupidity, right? So yeah. uh, in, in some ways, there is that type of decentralization in the sense that when, when you have a generator in your building, effectively, you have a republic in your building, right? So yes, from yeah. a from a philosophical perspective. However, our taxes became very high. And in the old days, when I was growing up, when taxes were low, it was okay to do that, but taxes became very high. In fact, and this, I didn't, I didn't notice this, Nassim Talib uh, noticed this. If you look at the primary fiscal deficit of, of the Lebanese government, it's actually flat. We don't have a deficit. We, we, we don't spend more than we make. The reason there's a deficit is because of all the debt. So what that means is that since we, you and I know there's, a, there's too many employees in the government and we waste a lot of money in the government, what that means is our taxes are too high, not too low. You see what I'm saying? So the solution yeah. isn't yeah. necessarily by, of course, jibayi, and the collection is, is bad, mm. but that's not the solution. The solution is to, to be more efficient in how we're spending it, of course, and collection of taxes, not necessarily raising taxes. This is not necessarily, but because we're on the topic of decentralization, this is not necessarily... Lebanon focus, but I guess you could put it there. What do you think about adopting e-currency or cryptocurrency? I mean, that in a way could be a viable solution. And for some people that have completely lost faith in, in government and institutions, maybe this is, you know, something that could be more sustainable. It doesn't solve the main problem. You know, you, if you want to buy a tire for your car, you can't make a e lira to do it. You know, the, yeah, the, the, the Pirelli is not going to accept that. Pirelli wants a US dollar or a euro to sell you the tire. So it doesn't change the fact that the reason we have a crisis is because we don't have sufficient dollars to maintain our lifestyle. That's the problem. Whether you adopt a lira, whether you peg the lira, whether you use the dollar instead of the lira, any, whatever you do, you still have to solve the problem of the balance of payment deficit. So even those that are screaming for uh, uh, this new thing now, they think they invented something, the, uh, the currency board. The currency board is, is basically a way to peg what it is harder to get out of it than a normal peg. And the assumption there is like Riyad Salemi was walking down the street one time. He sees this hot chick walking by and he's whistling. And then he trips and the peg is gone. And Riyad Salemi stopped the peg because he's, he's running out of money. So, you know, if you do a currency board, for example, as a way to, to maintain the currency, it, all it does is it says, okay, you, you can't print lira if you don't have dollars against it, right? What does that mean? That means automatically you, all the deposits turn to zero, 100% of the haircut. You stop paying <laughs> your army and, and that. So the guys coming up with this are people, you know, living in, in, a, in a nice safe country like the United States where there's law and order and, and yeah. you, you don't have coup d'etats, uh, you know, every few months and you don't, you know, you know it's, it's, 
it's, it's people that live in the first world that come up with these stupid solutions that don't work in the third world. Anyway, so the issue, the issue, the main issue for why we, we our currency is 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 is, is, is being decimated today is because we are. Uh, spending too much money, too many dollars, and because we're printing. Yeah. So you, you stop, if you want to stop the bleeding, you, you stop printing lira at 3,900 to pay the deposits, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and you, you, uh, you, know, you stop spending more dollars than you bring in. And we gave, we gave, as a, as a, yeah, yeah, we gave a lot of the, the technical details about what's wrong with the system right now and, and why the economy is the way it is. But also a huge reason is let's face it corruption you know this country corruption is secondhand nature it's embedded in every single fucking aspect of this country is corruption and something people want to know because when we're on the topic of justice and, and getting shit done is the stolen funds that have been taken out of this country the average person will tell you we're never going to see those stolen funds again. They've sent them to Switzerland and they've sent them to this and they sent them to this. So what I want to get your opinion on is, are we ever going to see stolen funds by these politicians restored and returned? And has there been examples like this in the world? Like, has it happened outside? Like, I, I don't like the... Uh, it's a catchy slogan, okay? Uh, the, the return of the stolen funds since 1975. It's a very catchy slogan. The problem there is there's due process. You can't just say, any, you know, you pick your favorite bad guy, you say, this guy stole money, right? Everybody agrees he stole money. But prove it to me, mm. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, what... Any, first of all, the, the theft in Lebanon, to a large extent, was, was legal, was within the system. And the reason it was legal and within the system is because we acquiesced, Yani. We were, we colluded with it. We allowed it to happen. You kind of alluded to it at the beginning by saying people, when it hit their pocketbook, that's when they hit the streets, right? Uh, in, in, in some ways, that's the way it is. The Lebanese, down, right down to the bone, is, is corrupt as a culture. Yani, uh, exam, the other day, I was walking down the street. There was a guy parked on the sidewalk, blocking the way. So this, 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 I'm going to post this video. This dad with his stroller, his baby, he, he has to get off the sidewalk and walk in the middle of the highway going like this, please don't run me over with my baby, right? And I'm watching and filming this from behind. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So you know, the, the selfish bastard who parked on the, on, on, on the sidewalk threatened this guy's life and his baby's life, right? Yeah. With cars honking because they don't even want to be patient by while this dad walks with the stroller and the baby, right? So what yeah. happened in Lebanon is that there was, you know, there was a bastard who, who screwed this guy with this this dad with this with this with his baby with his toddler, right? But then there's a bigger bastard who screwed the guy in, in the parking lot through the yeah. deposits or the lira. So it's always yeah. about the big fish eating the smaller fish eating the smaller fish. That's the way the country has always functioned. And it, when, you, when you accept the fact that there's no electricity since 1990 and you still vote for the same people over and over again, right? Uh, then you have to bear some responsibility for the situation we're in today. You have to bear that responsibility. Mm. Uh, and we actually got into an interesting conversation in our last episode that we recorded. Now, I well, I have this idea which might be a bit controversial, and I don't know if you might agree with me or not, but I always say that our problem is not a political problem, it's more of a societal problem. Like, even if we do get rid of these politicians, as you mentioned, we have so much corruption embedded within our blood. Like, every single action that you want to do in our country, you can't get anything done in the country unless you know people. To a certain extent. If you really want to improve Lebanon, it's not about the politicians. It's more about us as a culture that need to adapt and innovate. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. In fact, when you've been doing something wrong for so long, 
you, you stop realizing you do something wrong. Like I, I walk around a lot. I don't drive uh, except when I have to. So I walk around town and when you, you get to the zebra crossing, when you're crossing, and a guy will cross the zebra and block you. He'll just block you. And then, you, you know, you have to go around him, right? And then they he'll don't go even through understand a red light the zebra crossing is So this guy doesn't realize that what he's doing is immoral, illegal, etc., right? Yeah. So it's like embedded in our culture to, to break the law, to not respect law and order, to not respect other people, to not respect other people's space. It's normal. So the other thing, the other problem is this is a generational thing. And in my generation mm -hmm. and my dad's generation, it was normal for my grandfather to vote for the Zaim, who's uh, the grandfather of the current one. My dad voted mm -hmm. for his son. I voted for his son's son. And my son will vote for his son's 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 sons, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, when I traveled outside, and I I'm like, well, wait a fucking minute. Why is it happening this way? And like your generation traveled virtually, if not physically. Mm -hmm. And, and therefore, you know, you guys were, you know, you saw that this was an anomaly that shouldn't be accepted. But there is no accountability. And if you're voting for the last hundred years for the same name, that means that that person does not have to deliver on the stuff he was voted so. into power for. This is why this guy who took the, 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 uh, the vaccine, remember the, the, the deputy? Yeah. A bunch of deputies yeah. took it. This guy, this guy has been living in this type of, of Shawazian for so long, he doesn't even realize, he doesn't even realize that what he did was immoral to the extent that he went so. out and he started yelling and he wants to fire and kick out the head of the World Bank. And this, this guy, we are begging the World Bank for a loan so we feed our people because we are a semi-failed state. And this idiot wants to, to kick the guy out of the country and, and is making fun of his name. <laughs> to play devil's advocate, hello, no... The government doesn't magically appear. The people at the end of the day are the ones who are going to vote for the government. And essentially you get the government you deserve because you put them there, in essence. Hello, playing devil's advocate, what people do say is that they create a system that makes you vote for them. What do I mean by this? They control the media narrative, uh, the economic advantages, they provide security for their local clans. And there's this very... We, essentially we don't have a state it's it's tribes it's being protected by your tribes so playing devil's advocate people will say yes technically we are the ones who voted for them and everything but the system they've constructed heavily suits heavily suits them and gets the average joe to be brainwashed into voting for them so i think it's 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 a double-sided uh a sword in that sense uh, like, I, I want to address something before that you mentioned about the system. I, I don't think they were smart sure. enough to construct the system the way it happened. I think the system sort of evolved. You know, it evolved like mm. just like m monkeys evolved into humans. It evolved <laughs> in a way, and uh, the survival of the fittest, our acquiescence, a lot of it uh, made it this way. And the system survived to a large extent because it was built on a guy like you being unemployed. And a guy your age, if you look at the unemployment rate in Lebanon, there was a, a study about this. So the average unemployment, even before the crisis, was something like 30%. Uh, among the youth, it was something like 40%. Yeah. Among the old people, yani between 60 and 64, you know what the unemployment rate was? I read one World Bank report that was something, it was like lower than the United States. So the system is designed that older people maintain their job security yeah. and you are unemployed to the extent that, and I don't know you guys well, but my parents, your parents, probably you know, the expectation was that you were going to go and do a grad degree somewhere. You were going to go work in the GCC. You were going to immigrate to uh, whatever. And, and the whole point, the whole system encouraged you to do that so that you will get a job outside and send money in <laughs> to maintain the artificially inflated uh, salary of this guy who's 60 years old. 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I so, see what so you're the saying, system yeah. evolved in in, 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 this, in this fashion. And you were expected to do it. Yani, if you are an American kid, 18 years old, you never think, okay, when I graduate college, I'm going to leave America. You don't think yeah. that, right? Yeah. And if very, very few people in Europe or America leave the, their, the con con their yeah. continent that they were born in, right? Maximum, they leave the state or the city, but not the yeah. whole country like we mm. do. The expectation is that we all immigrate. And the system was very happy with that. Even if you look at the dollar al-Tullabi, why did they pass the dollar al-Tullabi? Why didn't they pass the dollar al-Tubbi? And if we're talking human rights, would yeah. you allow someone to transfer dollars out because he needs a double bypass operation that he can't get in Lebanon? Or he, he needs a bone marrow transplant for cancer? Or dollar to lobby? Why is the dollar to lobby the one they allowed? Yeah. Even though they're, they're not applying properly. Because the dollar to lobby means that that kid is going to get a job outside yeah. one day and, and, and transmit and dollars. And send the money the back. Mm, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, just to kind of play devil's advocate and something i did want to ask you just to kind of wrap up and this is a bit off topic but just because i this i've seen this conversation going around israel uh has now been making peace agreements with a bunch of middle eastern countries and i've heard the narrative saying this is so fucking bad for the lebanese economy because um now in essence why would any of the multinationals want to come and start a company in lebanon because back in the day you could do this because Lebanon had human capital and Lebanon could work with Dubai and Saudi and Qatar and blah 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 but now that Dubai has made the uh, sorry that Israel has made these peace treaties with across the Middle East this might be at the detriment to the Lebanese economy so I wanted to get your take on that what do you think the peace treaty Israel has been conducting with several countries is going to do for Lebanon it's definitely catastrophic, and I've been I've been to the Gulf for the last few months, and within I, I happened to be there when the whole thing was signed, and within days, within days, you could see all these citizens of Israel that were, you know, filled up the whole country. It wasn't. It's not like Egypt, which even today you can't see it. It's just the transformation has been remarkable in terms of the acceptance and and that stuff. So. On the one, of course, in theory, you're definitely right. It is, it is definitely a negative because there's a lot of overlapping skills uh, that, and now we have a new competitor that we didn't have before. Yeah. No question about that. Of course, we have a lot to, you know, a lot further to go in the first place before we worry about that. Mm -hmm. you know, this problem you're talking about is a problem that we will worry about when we get to here. Right now, we, we're, yeah, we're, yeah, you know, I see what you mean. Right now, we're, you're talking about. And we don't have a port, you know, we're talking about 50% unemployment. We, we have some major, major issues of the devaluation of the currency, etc. And it, it's a little bit arrogant of us to think that we can even compete with them at this stage in, in time. Mm, I see what you mean. And uh, I, I did want to wrap things up by saying I see on your T-shirt that you're officially retired. But what about finance minister in a uh, supposed secular government? Would you ever be interested in taking up a position in government? No, because uh, I think I can make, I think I can ha influence things better from the outside than the inside. Fair. Yani, I'll give you an example. The, uh, for example, the World Bank loan. Okay, as you know, it came in at, they were going to pay it at 6240. And I, I led a whole big lobbying campaign in media and among foreign diplomats to the extent that I killed the 6240 rate along with people that, like minded people that were supporting me in this thing. If I were a minister in the government, they would have told you to shut the fuck up and, and, <laughs> yeah, and stay the, the book, basically. So, so yeah. it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a small victory. Remember, you know, 
by the way, it's not only about the World Bank loan. There's about a billion, a billion and a half dollars in uh, in foreign aid that comes in, and banks were stealing the central bank or banks, banks by the way, private company were stealing uh, 50, 60, 70, 75 percent of that money that was intended for uh, uh, you know for the needy. So this is a, I think it's a major victory for people like us. And uh, I mean, look, in Lebanon, we sometimes have this cliche thing, you know, you have to be in a position of authority uh, for you to make change. I mean, I think I've met more diplomats in my non-position mm -hmm. than the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Lebanon. I mean, if you count how many diplomats I've met over the last year, met yeah. with, I mean, I'm not talking five minutes, ten minutes. I've, I've sat with them for three hours in some cases. Yeah. Some of the top uh, diplomats from all over the world, uh, from the most powerful countries in the world. If you look at that, I, I spent more time with them than the than people that are appointed uh, officials of the, of the Lebanese government. So uh, in my mind, uh, it's not about what the position is. It's about how much influence you can have. That, that yeah. said, I don't think we've achieved a lot when we look at how much we need to achieve. And on a, on a final note, on a final note, we always like to ask, recently we've been asking our guests this, to get different opinions. Where do you see Lebanon in the next 10 years? In what direction do you think the country is heading mm. to? Look, we are at a fork in the road today. Mm. And if we do, يعني, what again, Sharb al-Nahas coined this term, I, I, I took it because it's the right one, uh, equitable distribution of losses, tawzi' al-adil al-khasayyah. If we do this stuff, and we do some of the stuff that I told you about, we can get out of this crisis within months. When I say get out of it, I mean it starts, the, the, it starts turning around yeah, and, an upward and the country curve, starts rising yeah. again. On the other hand, if we continue the way we're going, and I wrote this in an Oriel article, it's called The Path to Armageddon, which tells you the whole story. If we continue, we're losing, yeah, we have a lifeline, like, the, like a cat has nine lives. We have a lifeline which, ha, which is losing 3% per month. So within somewhere between 16 months to three years, we will become Mogadishu 1993 if we continue on this path. Mm -hmm. uh, so the answer to your question is, where do I see this in 10 years? Depends if we go down road A or road B. We have only a few months before we reach the point of no return. If we continue along this path for the next few months the, the, and we reach the point of no return, then uh, this, is, this, this is problem is going uh, to be a very bad it's going to be a very bad situation yeah. for the country in 10 years, for the next 10 years. Dan, the man, pleasure talking to you. Uh, super insightful. And uh, yeah, if I have any other financial questions, I'll be sure to spam you at three in the morning. <laughs> so so look, for, look out for my messages. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Thank I appreciate nice the time. Day. Thank you so much. Man. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please make sure to like, follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Anrami, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook and I'm a Sabal. Thank you. Also, we'd love your feedback. So please DM us on Instagram at Fauda2020.